in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be reading uh, the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4, and then we'll be studying from the first four verses as we take up this, um, this account of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So we're going to read, and then we will pray, and then we'll turn to the explanation of God's word. The scripture says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came And we're ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can come and open up your word and that we can find accounts, details in it that speak to our very need. And and sometimes the the, the treasures are are deep and we have to to break out the sharpest of tools and to labor for a while to, to bring them out. And then other times there are treasures just laying on the surface to be gathered and picked up because the truths are so relevant and so needful for us to hear they're they're just they speak to us where we are lord and and the scripture says that temptations will come and so we pray that that you would help us uh, in the middle of a of a holiday season where where perhaps we will be tempted to to think that if i purchase this present, then I will satisfy or complete someone's life, and nothing can do that but you, Lord. Maybe we think if I, if I buy this, they will love me in the way that I desire to be loved, and we would, we would call that idolatry. We think as we race around that, that we need to measure up to some societal code and check off all the boxes and just be perfect. And the scripture tells us that we cannot be perfect. That perfection, that righteousness comes from you. And so we pray as we go through our lives, different situations and occasions that you would teach us from this account how to handle temptation. We pray that you would show us grace and that having seen your grace, 
that we would walk in the way that Jesus walked. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, many of you know that I am uh, kind of uh, athletically challenged, not competitively challenged, um, but, uh, but, you know, I, I watch baseball and I, and I think, like, I'm not, I, I get it. I understand, you know, like home runs and all that, you know, rounding the bases. But I don't, I'm like, why do people watch this? Um, you know, football's a little bit more drama there. And so I said, hey, maybe, you know, I'll go and find my own sport, right? Not like curling or something. That would be <laughs> totally lame. But I went through this, um, I went through a, a boxing phase. Not that I started boxing or anything, but I, I just said, I'm going to go on YouTube and watch, like, all the greatest boxing fights. And, uh, and that was kind of interesting. I have fallen out of the boxing phase. I read a bunch of articles and a few books and things. And I'm like, yeah, I know a lot about boxing. And then um, the Pacquiao-Mayweather fight came on. And it was like 1 o'clock in the morning. I was like, forget that. Um, so, so let's talk about boxing just for a second. Boxing is, uh, is, is, is two men in a ring, right? It is, it is primarily um, about endurance, about, about sustaining uh, having the, the physical prowess not only to defeat your opponent, but to be able to take his blows and to, uh, to stand up, uh, up against them. Um, there is probably one iconic fight in the history of boxing, somebody might argue, where, where we see convention and talent and skill and innovation all come together. This is in 1977 in Zaire when... Um, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, makes his comeback, what's called the Rumble in the Jungle. Um, what, what is amazing about that fight is that, is that George Foreman was younger than him. Everybody believed he was more powerful than him. But Ali surprises the crowd in the fight by, by innovating, by defying tradition and convention. In the very first rounds, um, Ali does not do what he's always done, which is talk trash, say, I'm the greatest, I thought you could hit, I thought you were fast, all that stuff, um, and move around a whole lot. But instead, he goes right for Foreman, which is what form, the last thing that George Foreman was expecting. He also uh, throws punches that Foreman is not expecting. He throws uh, right-hand leads, right? When you, when you fight with your left, you only got a little bit of distance to travel, right? When you punch. But when you throw like this and you, and you hit the, the long, that somebody can just smack you, right? And so this is the, the one punch that Foreman did not expect Muhammad Ali to throw. And he threw it again and again and again and again and, and disoriented him. Um, uh, in, the, in the second round of the fight, uh, after, after Foreman thought, oh, okay, you know, he's just going to come right at me, uh, Foreman said, I'm going to go right at him. And, and uh, what Ali then began to do was to, to, to put his dukes up and to lean back into the ropes as, as Foreman just pounded on his forearms and on his sides. And by the eighth or ninth round, Foreman's energy was spent. Um, the stronger fighter, the more powerful fighter, was outwitted uh, by the innovation of the challenger. We see in the New Testament uh, that we are tempted by the devil, that, that he is a roaring lion, that, that he prowls around seeking whom he may devour. Um, Peter is told by Jesus, P- 
Peter, the devil has asked that he might sift you as wheat. Uh, but I've prayed that, that, that you, when you fall, that you would be, be raised up again. Um, we have this enemy who seeks to do combat with us. And if we are wise, we understand that we are to run from him. We are to resist him, firm in our faith. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Though he is stronger, though he is the more powerful fighter, though he is older and in some sense wiser and craftier than we, if we are wise... And if we learn the proper ways and the proper techniques, then we can defeat him and defeat him regularly. So where are we in Matthew? Um, we're, in, we're in the opening chapters, a section of, of Matthew, uh, starting in verse 1, going to, to chapter 4, verse 11, a section that we could call Meet the Messiah, where we're seeing the, the character and the quality of the Messiah displayed. A king, the anointed one, must have qualifications. And so we see in Matthew chapter 1, we see Jesus' legal qualifications, his genealogy, that he is the son of David by Joseph, by adoption. We see the virgin birth, that he's the son of God uh, by special creation in terms of his humanity by the Holy Spirit. We see in Matthew chapter 2 that he fulfills prophecy as as Matthew points out, that he goes to all the different locations and fulfills different uh, um, uh, tasks that the Messiah must fulfill, even though they're out of his control as he's an infant. Uh, Matthew chapter 3, we move into this section where we see divine approval. Um, the divine approval of a prophet, John the Baptist, who is the first witness to his identity. And then at his baptism, we see the second witness. The Holy Spirit comes and rests on him, anointing him with power. And then we hear the third witness, a voice from heaven, the Father, who says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And so we have three witnesses. But those who consider this evidence would probably ask the question, so he hasn't done anything yet. Is he strong? Is he good? Is he able to reign? When Saul was chosen as king, he was anointed by Samuel, and then he was presented to Israel. The Bible says that some worthless fellows said about him, how can this man save us? 1 Samuel 10, 27. After he's anointed and presented, Saul enters into combat with the army of Nahash the Ammonite. And then the people applaud when they see the power of their king. But Saul's character is not good and we see it degrade over time. Samuel mourns over Saul, but then takes his horn at God's command, fills it with oil, and goes and anoints David to be king. David presents himself to Saul as the one who can deliver Israel from their enemy, and then David wades out into the battlefield to go up against Goliath in single combat. A king is anointed. And then he is tested as he enters into his formal reign. And so we see Jesus testified to by John the Baptist. We see him 
baptized. And as he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and testifies, anointing him with power that he is Messiah. And the father says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, but now he must be proven. And so we look at the text and we're going to see a number of things. First, we see that the spirit led Jesus. The spirit led Jesus. This is not some surprise assault, some, some attack by the devil that was not expected. The Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness. The Spirit led Jesus to a particular place. It says in verse 1, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit had brought Jesus into the world in a, as, a, as a physical man in Matthew 1.20. The Spirit anointed him and rested on him in 3.16. And now the Spirit leads him to be tempted or to be tested. The Greek word is the same. Leads him to the wilderness. Tempted. Tested. Okay? The, this word has a, has a positive sense, right? To try or to, to prove, right? You, you might say... I, I can cook, and somebody will scoff, and you will say, watch me. Watch me cook and prove that you can, right? I, I, do, not, I do not try this test often. Um, Nancy, I can remember the, the very first time I was left alone with Sam, I'm pretty sure it was like, okay, you're just going for an hour, right? Just an hour, and then you'll be back to take care of our human living child, right? You know? test me, try me, I think I can do it, you know, and then she was back, and I had passed the test, and now she will leave me for an entire weekend with all four of them. <laughs> In a negative sense, tempting or testing is designed to entice, to solicit, to provoke to sin. The word means the same thing, but the sense, positive or negative, differs on who is involved in the temptation or the test. God's intent in testing is that we would succeed and that we would grow. James chapter 1 says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I think this is one of the hardest verses in the entire Bible. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Why does God bring trials into our lives? Why does he hurl us upon difficulty so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ so that we would be changed and transformed into what God believes we ought to be, that we would be proven to be those who walk by faith. Satan's intent in trial is to destroy us. Let no one say when he is tempted, same Greek word, tempted, tested, I am being tempted by God. That there is used in the negative sense. God is enticing me, soliciting me, drawing me away to sin, to destroy me. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We have, we have a desire, a craving for sin and evil within us, and the devil says, come over here, come, engage be, be, be part of this, partake, that he might prove that we are wicked and sinful and alienate us from our Father. So, 
The Holy Spirit led Jesus to this place of tempting, of testing, where God would demonstrate that the Son was indeed his Son and was worthy of praise and worship and reign, and Satan's intent is to destroy. And the Spirit also led Jesus to this place in this condition. Look at verse 2. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I cannot imagine. If I get up and skip breakfast and then get busy and skip lunch, right, and I don't find a snack somewhere in the middle of the day and I get home for dinner, I am what my friend Nancy Carlson would say, ill as a hornet. You know, like I just cannot take it. Missing breakfast and lunch. Jesus had not eaten any solid, substantial food for 40 days and 40 nights. He was drinking water, praying in solitude, living out in the wilderness in a state of dependence, of loneliness, perhaps some level of human desperation. Located in this battlefield by the intent of the Spirit and knowing that he should not and therefore he would not leave and he remained there awaiting the purpose of God in bringing him there. He was led by the Spirit to that place and in that condition. And so we see the single combat of the future king begin. The combat will take place in three rounds. We're just going to look at round one this morning. And so we see the assault begin in verse three. It says that the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The the statement speaks to the point of Jesus' need. He was hungry. Some commentators, I I did not actually go and look for pictures. I'm not sure if this is even really ultimately meaningful. Some of the people who write commentaries say that the rocks in that region are flattish, roundish, maybe resembling in some sense old ancient loaves of bread. Not like with fungus on them, but loaves of old. Not like the wonder bread loaf of today. Uh, and so, and so the, the, the devil would have pointed out particular stones and says, make that bread. You're, you're the son of God. Eat. I wonder if hunger was paining Jesus. Was he weakening physically? How much weight had he lost? Was he, was he faint? You recall that, that um, episode of, of the Bugs Bunny cartoon where um, the two men are stranded on the island, right? And they have no food. And one is looking at the other one and drool is coming out of his mouth and he envisions his, his short, round friend looking like a hamburger, right? And then the short, round friend looking at his tall, thin friend sees him transform into a hot dog, you know? It's like you wonder under how... how, how How was the man, Jesus, fully man, fully God, what was he feeling like as this battle begins? If you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The intent of the statement is this. This is an if-then statement. If you are, then, the word then is implied, it doesn't show up there, then command. What's the goal of the temptation? There are, there, there are two ideas that are floated around. Uh, we'll go with the second. The first is this, that the, that the statement is designed to get Jesus to doubt his sonship. Grammatically, this doesn't work. It's written in a way where, where if, like, you know how you can say in English, children 
shouldn't you be in bed now, right? You know, and you're like, the answer to that is yes, right? You, you would say something like, you shouldn't be eating marshmallows for breakfast, should you? No, I shouldn't, right? You, just, you can just hear the intent, the way that the sentence is, is set up. So in Greek, that doesn't work. But also, Jesus had been announced to be the Son of God. He was announced to be God's exceptional servant. We saw that last week in Isaiah 42.1. And Jesus was going to do all kinds of miracles, including taking a little bit of bread and making it into a whole lot of bread. So it's, it's not that the, the, the intent here is not designed to get Jesus to, to say, am I really the son of God? That's, that's not the intent. The intent is this, to get Jesus to question the goodness of the father's providential care. The temptation is this, son of God, you have a justifiable grievance against the one who calls himself your father, who demands your allegiance as God, who has sent you on this mission, who anointed you with power and said, I am well pleased with him. And then he has brought you out here under the power of the spirit and he has left you to wither away and starve and die. So voice your complaint, take action, provide for yourself in your own power what this father of yours does not in his quiet, distant absence. The intent of the temptation is to induce anxiety and outrage about his physical need. Another layer of the temptation is to provoke Jesus to demand what his body craved, but the foundation of it is to break his perfect trust in his father's good care. What Matthew Henry would, would say, to despair of his father's goodness. The strategy of Satan here is to attempt to eclipse Jesus' beautiful vision of his caring father God with a stern, uncaring, dark, distant, unanswering God. To uproot Jesus' vision of God and to plant a false seed, to build an idol in his mind that would destroy him. And so what we have here is a test of dependence. Will he use his power and his authority, independent of the Spirit's leading and the Father's leadership? Will he deviate from the Father's good and perfect will? And so we see the assault come. And I would say that this is often the way in which the devil assaults each and every one of us. Who among us has not at some point expressed to someone else, I'm just, I'm feeling distant and disconnected from God. People say things like, why, if, if God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? And I always say that they're, that they're not saying that they're concerned about global hunger in general. What they're concerned about is the fact that somebody who, that they know and love got sick and died and they're angry that they're gone. God, you say that you're good, but I don't see your goodness. I believe the devil attacks us there often. So let's look at Jesus' response. It comes in, in two stages. First, it comes in the form of his internal refusal. Jesus pushes back internally and says, no. The command is, turn these stones. Command these stones to become bread. And Jesus says, no. 
I do not put the voice from heaven on trial. I do not limit my father's care, Satan, adversary, tempter, to one method of feeding or establishing my own timetable. I'm hungry and I have this power, but I wait on my father and I wait within his will. I do not do for myself what I'm trusting my father for. And I certainly do not do what you say. As Jesus would say later in his ministry, that Satan is a murderer and a thief and a liar and a destroyer. And there is a God in heaven who cares and who answers. And so in refusal, he says, no, I will wait for my father to come and feed me. And here, uh, thinking forward about what Jesus would say in John 4, I wonder, as, as the disciples had left him at the well and gone into town to get him food, and, and he shares the gospel with the woman at the well, and she, believing that he is Messiah, goes and begins to share, and the disciples uh, come back as Jesus has, has, has shared the gospel with this woman, and she's believing it, and she's leading others to herself. And then, and then the disciples come back, and they're like, here, Rabbi, here's food, and this is what Jesus says, and I think this sheds some light on what's going on here. John 4, 32, he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? Like, that's our job. We're the disciples. We, we bicker and go and supply Jesus' needs. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus refuses internally and pushes back against the the influence of of what the devil is saying to him. He drives the thought out of his mind, reasoning and rationalizing. And then he replies, and this is what he says, it is written. You'll notice a little quotation mark there, right? It is written plus quotation mark means that Jesus is not going to invent his own words, though he has the authority. He is going to rest and rely on familiar words of scripture, words of war, a fighter verse to beat back the enemy. When David, Jesus' great, great, great something grandfather, had fled from Saul. Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear, you'll recall, uh, because, because uh, David or Saul was departing from the way of the Lord and an evil spirit from the Lord was coming upon him to torment him and, and, and he knew that David would likely be king and so he tried to kill him several times. David fled from his presence and when he fled he was friendless, resourceless, and aimless. He didn't know what to do or where to go, so he went where he knew. He went to the tabernacle, to Elimelech the priest, and he asked him for two things. He said, do you have any bread? Isn't that interesting? Here is the great-great-grandson of David in the wilderness without bread, and David, when he runs, wants bread. The priest, the representative of the Lord, fed him with the holy bread, from the table inside the tabernacle. And then as David is, is munching, I, I envision him eating, I know that they're, that's not what they're like, but those, um, those biscuits, like from Red Lobster, you know, round. And I just see David, you know, he's got like an entire biscuit and he's chewing and some crumbs are coming out of his mouth. And he asks the second question, he says, do you have any weapons? Do you have a spear or, or a sword? And the priest said, 
this. The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah. Behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. The sword of Goliath is unique. David was likely younger when he defeated Goliath with the, 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 the stone, with his sling. And he was probably too small to wield the sword of Goliath. But here now, in his time of need, he had in some sense provided a weapon for himself, which now he could use. But it's also a reminder of what God had done on that battlefield and would do again. David had been anointed king and he would be king. And so the sword is presented to him as a a pile of stones, a a breadcrumb trail, a memorial of the fact that battles had been fought and won in the power of the Lord. And so now we see the son of David on the battlefield. And he responds to the assault of his enemy, not with divine power, but by calling on divine aid. He both takes up the shield of faith and unsheaths the sword of the spirit. Charles Spurgeon says, outflashed the sword of the spirit. Our Lord will fight with no other weapon. There is none like that. Give it to me. Jesus fights this battle to encourage us using the resources that we have at our disposal, the Holy Spirit and the word of God. What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 16? In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Your father has abandoned you and left you here to starve and die, so make bread for yourself. And, and Jesus is just like, shield up, ping. You know, and off the the dart goes. It just flies away and lands harmless on the ground. Take the helmet of salvation, verse 17 says, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It is so important for believers to possess and to know and to cherish God's word. Now, Jesus will quote a very specific quote in just a second, but let me just, I mean, just put a foundation stone under this idea of knowing and cherishing the word. This is what Moses says at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. He says, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. There's no, there's no hidden mystery of figuring out how to obey God's will. It's, the, it's not locked up in some box in heaven that we can't get to. We've got to build a high tower and, and get up there, right? No, neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. That's what Moses says. God's given us his word We have an amazing technological innovation in these books and in these phones and in emails that we can get God's word sent to us on a daily basis and read and and dig into it and apply it to our, our lives so that when temptation and struggle comes, we can say, it is written and break out the sword of the Spirit. 
It says in verse 4, but he answered, it is written. And then he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, you can't eat Bible verses. That's not what Jesus is saying here. I'm not hungry. I've got my Bible, right? That's not the point. It's not, that's not what he's saying. There are, 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 are some... Uh, comments that I read in prepping for this where, where they just kept on bringing up the fact that maybe God was miraculously sustaining him somehow, somehow, you know, giving him some ability to not be hungry because, and I just, I think, no, that, I don't see that at all. I see, I see a weary man assaulted by the devil hanging on to faith and fighting. What's going on here in its original setting is that Israel is out in the wilderness. Beginning in the book of Genesis, we, we learn that, that God had given humanity a representative, Adam, and that the sonship of Adam, Adam is called God's son in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Adam was, was given a kingdom to reign over the earth, and he was then tested in a perfect environment, and he failed because he was deceived by the tempter, and all humanity died. And then Israel was called to be God's son. You'll recall the, the quote from the book of Hosea in, in Matthew chapter 2, out of Egypt I've called my son, that he originally refers to Israel. And Israel came up out of Egypt and was led in the wilderness and there they were tested and they failed and many, many were condemned. But God tells them the reason why he's going to lead them through the difficult wilderness and why, why he will sustain and provide for them. This is what it, it says in Deuteronomy 8 too. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. Jesus is saying in quoting this verse, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's saying, I embrace this pain and this discipline and this testing, knowing that it is the good work of God in my life to prove that I am obedient and righteous and I will be steadfast. Suffering does not disprove the father's love for his child. Job, in chapter 2, Two, verse 10 says, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Israel's testing in the desert was intended to teach her hearing and obeying God's word is the most important thing in life. Israel demanded bread in the wilderness and they died. Like Adam, they forsook their sonship for food and they died. Jesus forsook bread in the wilderness and he lived and in him we live. A man may possess the blessings of God in the world. A man may eat physical bread and yet miss 
the blessings which God has for him. Jesus will say, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. John 6, 27. The man or woman of God may suffer the pain of physical hunger or deprivation and be nourished spiritually at that time of hunger by learning to depend. Learning the lesson of waiting, learning the lesson of crying out, learning the lesson of looking up for help from our good shepherd instead of running back to Egypt and to slavery. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 5 says this, speaking of those who, who drank from the rock and who were led through the Red Sea and who were delivered by those amazing plagues. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. We often think in a place where we are tempted and we have need and we think God is not meeting my need, God is not answering my prayers, he's not coming to deliver me, we think I must do it myself. And yet so often we are called to wait and to hope and to rejoice in our pain. This, I believe, is one of the lines of a song that we could call the song of the tempted. Or the song of the one tempted to despair of God's goodness. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail. And the fields yield no food. Let me tell you what, this is not that your homestead garden has not produced and now you've got to go to the food store and shop. This is there is no food at all. Though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. The sonship of Jesus was announced. He was anointed. He is now tested in the wilderness and he prevails against this test. In what ways does this apply to us today? Let's take a few moments and review what we can learn from Jesus. First, great events, honors, and privileges do not keep us from being tempted. In fact, the opposite is true. Think about this. This is the most singularly wonderful thing ever said about another human being. Matthew 3, 17. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And yet he moves from that place of honor to temptation immediately. Second, great moments are often followed by great trial. Remember when Peter went to the head of the class who do you say that I am? And they're like, some people say Elijah, some people say you're John the Baptist, some people, Peter's like, no, 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 you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. And Jesus is like, good job, Peter, smartest disciple ever. And Peter is like, yes, look at me. And then Jesus is like, now that you know who I am, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'll be handed over to, to the chief priests and the authorities. They're going to crucify me. And Peter's like, that's never going to happen. And Peter, Jesus is like, give me back the gold star. You get an F. Get behind me, Satan. Great moments often followed by great trial. 
Third, preparation for temptation often precedes temptation. Because God our Father desires that we have the resources needed to, needed to prevail. I wonder if as Satan said to him, your father has abandoned you. You will die here if you don't do something. If he heard again, you are my beloved son. God gave him exactly what he needed before he went into the wilderness to sustain him. Fourth, John Calvin says this, if Christ was tempted as the public representative of all believers, let us learn that the temptations that befall us are not accidental or governed by the will of Satan without God's permission, but that the Spirit of God presides over these contests as we exercise our faith. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that, that God restrains the temptation and, and makes the way of escape so that we can bear under it and that no temptation overtakes us that's, that's unique to us, that God wants us to endure it. Fifth, pray as taught by Jesus to avoid temptation. Pray as taught by Jesus to be delivered from evil. But expect single combat and be thankful that when you enter temptation though you are alone in a human sense that the Lord Jesus is with you and you are not alone he says I will never leave you or forsake you lo I am with you always even to the end of the age and imitate the Lord call in air support in the form of prayer and use God's words against the devil Sixth, outward afflictions, wants, and burdens are the great arguments Satan uses to make Christians doubt their sonship. We are sons of God by adoption, identified with Christ because he identified with us. And so Satan seeks to exploit our fear of want or lack or pain to gain a foothold, to find a little crack that he can stick a wedge in and then hammer away at it so that he might eclipse our vision of God. The truth is that afflictions are consistent with the love of God. And affliction and suffering proceeds from the fatherly love of God, as the Bible says. Seventh, seven of eight. The attack is always, always, always against the goodness of God and the truth of Scripture. I believe that's at the root of every temptation that God has abandoned us and we are on our own. That is the point of attack, no matter how well the attack may be disguised. And then eighth, we know that Christ was fortified by the Spirit with such power, John Calvin says, that the darts of Satan could not pierce him. And to you I would say this, you are fortified with Christ. And so here are a few specific words from Jesus. He appears in the heart of a storm and calms the waves and says to his disciples, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Regarding God's intent, Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. John 14, 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. John 16, 33, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. To conclude, the devil has been beaten 
by our brother, our Lord, our Savior. But as Christians, we should not believe that he is toothless or easily beaten. He travels and hunts us in a pack with the world and the flesh. His roar is deafening. His deceits and traps are carefully laid. This attack is often first. The attack, woe is me, I am abandoned by God, is often first and it withers us. And so we might think, having heard this message, I know what to do. I have heard a sermon on temptation. I've heard how to reply. I am ready. I will not fail you, Lord Jesus. I am not afraid, to which the Holy Spirit says, you should be. You should be. We must not fight with our own words, but arm ourselves with weapons that have no compare. We must say to God, give me some weapon to fight this enemy. And we hear the saints of old and our Lord say, there is a book. There is the Bible. It is full of mighty weapons. If you will take that, take it. For there is none but that for this battle. And the Christian ought to say, there is none like that. Give it to me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessing of your word. Uh, we, we, we often forget that we are at war and that it is a war that, 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 that consumes the whole of our lives from the moment that we are born. We are enslaved to an enemy and liberated from him by conviction of sin and repentance and the work of Jesus on the cross. We are newly born and plunged into combat We thank you that you don't leave us as orphans, but that you arm us and give us armor. You fit us for the battle. And we pray that that we would live in such a way that when temptation comes, that when when the devil has laid his traps and we are are unaware and resting in in complacency and the, the traps are sprung, that when we see the devil, when we see the temptations come upon us, that we would fight back in the way that the Lord Jesus taught us weary starving he fought back by depending on the holy spirit and using your word and we pray that we would not fear the devil with a a a slavish fear but that we would know that if we resist him in the way that jesus did he will flee from us But we pray that we would not be arrogant and trust in our own resources, but use the weapons that you've provided. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his example. We thank you that that we are in him and he is in us. We thank you that we are never alone and that we never need doubt your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's sing this closing song together.